We'll go there first. No gym today. So let me read this. Which says, uh, that's the letter, Chet. It says, you are my portion, O Lord. I have said that I would keep your words. I entreated your favor with my whole heart. Be merciful to me according to your word. I think Sergio just said something. All good. Yeah, we're everything's good online. Thank you, Sergio. Um, according to your word, I thought about my ways and turned my feet to your testimonies. I made haste and did not delay to keep your commandments. The cords of the wicked have bound me, but I have not forgotten your law. At midnight, I will rise to give thanks to you because of your righteous judgments. I am a companion of all who fear you and of those who keep your precepts. The earth, O Lord, is full of your mercy. Teach me your statutes. All right, we have, uh, uh, let's see, on April 9th and 11th here in Sarasota and online, you can check online and you can uh, uh, get tickets for this. It's a Christian movie that's out, uh, The Ark, Noah's Ark, it's the movie. And uh, you can go online, you can check that out and you know they, they give you the locations and all that. But here in Sarasota, it will be on the 9th and the 11th. And then I just found out that we have Pilgrim's Progress, which is coming in movie form towards the end of the month. And so if anybody wants to go to any good Christian movie, Pilgrim's Progress, it's kind of, you know, uh, uh, anyway, it's, it's one of the, I think, outside, yeah, the classics so we outside of the Bible. What's that? Coming here? No, 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 you're going to come here on the 11th. <laughs> if you want to go to the later showing on the 11th, that's fine. Class on the 11th. Um, is that really a Thursday? I fly back in next Tuesday's the 9th. See, you're a wise guy. Um, okay, and then um, I got a prayer request for Bruce. We prayed for him in the past. He had terrible knees, very painful knees. He had knee surgery, and he still got pain. And so we would ask that you would have Bruce in prayer. And um, I'm going to read, instead of reading the uh, Christian history today, I'm going to read just a short poem. I'm going to preface this by saying that... Uh, the guy that wrote this emailed it to me either yesterday or today, and I asked if I could read, and he said yes. Um, I'll just give his first name, Scott. He and his wife had, I want you to think of the worst thing that could happen in your life. Whatever you decide the worst thing that could happen in your life is, whether it's, you know, they've had that happen to them in the past six months, and it's been a real shock to them. It uh, is something that has robbed them of their sleep. It's robbed them of their joy except coming closer to the Lord and they found that the joy of the Lord is their strength so that's the context of what he wrote here and uh, I asked if I could read it he said yes so this is Scott and his wife just keep them in your prayers because they've had a very very difficult time in the past few months my grandpa was a preacher I so loved that man as he lay there dying he gently held my hand he finally called me how come for I always asked him why why did Jesus give his life how come he had to die he told me jesus died for those who called upon his name he said it was his final wish that i would do the same he said i was a soldier now to keep god's armor on we fight each day into the night and start again at dawn the tempest soon engulfed me i couldn't find the horde i was called into the battle but i didn't have my sword my helmet held up mightily not so well my shield my breastplate made of paper soon began to yield. I've been taken off the battlefield, bloodied, cut, and gored. I'm getting some new armor now. This one includes a sword. If you understand the connection, they, they have turned their hearts and minds to the word of God. And, uh, you know, it, 
they're Christians, uh, and many of us Christians for years, and we're not pursuing the Lord through his sword and using it as our offensive weapon. And, you know, you can have all of the defensive weapons in the world, and you can just be beaten to death. But if you have the sword, you can go on the attack. And so I'm assuming that's the symbolism that he gave right there. And if it is, then uh, that's how I took it, at least. And I'm sure that's what he meant. The armor of God. The armor of God, but not lacking the sword, you're going to come out of the battle bloodied. And in fact, yeah, the sword of truth, the word of God, and you need to make sure that you uh, have that and you need to display it and you need to use it wisely. So that that's a wonderful thing you said, and I appreciate that very much. Um, we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and we're in verse 9 today. And as I said, Jim is gone. He's not going to read for us, and uh, he's traveling, so we want to have him in prayer as well. Oh, yeah, we need to open in prayer. Anyway, so let me uh, get to the right page, and we'll have a quick prayer, and we'll get started. Heavenly Father, we certainly thank you for this beautiful, precious time that we have together to fellowship and to share in your word and to learn about uh, who you are and to study deeper the things that you have given to us through, at this time, the hand of Paul, but through uh, your spirit in particular, all of the word of God came. And we thank you for it, Lord. And we know that it's a sure word and we know that we have exactly what we need in that word to direct our lives and to handle our lives properly and also to lead other people to a greater understanding or even a new understanding of who Christ is. And so, Lord, we would certainly pray for Bruce, whose knee is uh, giving him trouble still. We would pray for Scott and his wife that uh, their very difficult situation, which happened in their life, uh, would be something that they would be able to hold close to and to remember fondly in the future and let the uh, the painful memories go behind them. And at the same time, we're grateful that even though they had a, a very sad time in the, the recent past, that they're able to overcome because of who you are and because of your precious word, which leads us to an understanding of who you are. And that includes the fact that you are in control of all things. Nothing is a surprise to you. And for those who are redeemed by you, all things are made new from day to day. And so, Lord, we thank you for that assurance. And we do pray that the word would be held properly today, it would be taught properly, and that it would be kept in our hearts in a way that would glorify you throughout our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, 1 Corinthians 7 verse 9 is where we're at. And that says, uh, but if they cannot, I'm going to go back and I'll tell you what, we'll just start at verse 5 just to make sure we have some context here. Do not deprive one another except with consent for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come stand, come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. But I say this as a concession, not as a commandment. For I wish that all men were even as I myself, but each one has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. But I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them if they remain even as I am. Verse 9, but if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to, and they insert these words, burn with passion. Actually, it says then to burn with passion is inserted by the translators. So here we go. This is the second half of the previous thought we finished with last week to the unmarried. Paul said that it was good if they remained even as he was, meaning unmarried. But if they cannot exercise self-control, he says, let them marry. Well, this is obvious. As someone who is unmarried is filled with the desires that come about in such a state, then they should get married. 
The surety is that desire leads to action, and action in this case is sin, because sex is to be between a man and a woman in the bonds of marriage. Referring back to Paul's statement in chapter 6, a Christian is in, in Christ, and therefore to engage in illicit sex is to sin against Christ directly. And so Paul goes on by saying, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. As I said, the last words with passion are inserted. To understand this in a way not evident in the English, the pulpit commentary provides an analysis of the Greek tense of the verb saying, the marry is in the aorist to marry once and for all and live in holy married union. The burn is in the present tense to be on fire with, and I can't pronounce that word, com, concupiscence, I don't know. It's one of those older words that, um, C-O-N-C-U-P-I-S-C-E-N-C-E. -E. Say it? Concupience. thank you. Anyway, whatever. Um, marriage once for all is better than continuous lust. The former is permitted, the latter is sinful. So there you get the uh, gist of what the tenses in the Greek say. Paul's words here follow on the words of Jesus, what he says way back in Matthew chapter 5. So we'll go there really quickly. And he says in Matthew 5, went too far, Charlie, I'm in Malachi now. Matthew 5, and then he says in verse 27, You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And so uh, we have that, and we were talking funny that that verse came up today because that's exactly what we were talking about before uh, class started. We're having a chat, three of us, and and uh, one of the three said, I've broken all of the Ten Commandments, and people look at this individual horrified, and I say it all the time. I know I have. There's two reasons why. One is because adultery comes simply by looking at lust, and murder comes by simply being angry at a brother. Okay, and I know I've broken the other eight, so it doesn't make any difference. I've broken all ten. But secondly, as I noted after that, James says if you broke one commandment, the law is broken. We've all broken every commandment that God has ever given. 613 laws in the law of Moses, you failed. And if you've broken that one by whatever, I don't care if it's idolatry or if it's coveting or epic fail, it's done. That's why we need Christ so desperately, and I wish people could understand that. Anyway, so there you go. The Bible teaches that intent to sin is sin. We are given a remedy for the sins we face concerning sexual desire in this verse that we're looking at. However, there are instances where the physical needs cannot be met for whatever reason. In those cases, additional prayer and communion with the Lord is needed. That is no different than an alcoholic or a drug addict who must learn to focus on Christ and to rely on him. We're given our instructions and we need to strive to conduct our lives in holiness and in a manner which is honoring to the Lord. That's it. I, there aren't any other, there's no second options. There's no, well, you know, I'm going to go halfway and not all the way. Or That's it. We, either we're sinning or we're living for the Lord. And one way, oh, you know what? Before I go on, I have a shirt on, the good shepherd, which came from Israel. I just, first time I've worn it today. And this was Mary who comes from uh uh, Naples, and she was attending with us for quite a while from Naples, and then she had something come up down in Naples where she can't drive here anymore. But 
while she was in Israel, she sent me some, some shirts and I wanted to thank her for that publicly because uh, uh, now she's back in Florida. But she, uh, what a great, great person she is. She loves the Lord. She reads the daily commentaries every day. She's always watching the sermons and everything. And she, she'll send me an email. She's just on fire for the Lord. And so this means a lot to me. And uh, Hidako has one too. Um, there were, she gave me a couple various sizes and one of them was extra large and it happened to be the one that was open you know it was just, the plastic was open so i thought it's going to be way too big but i'll try it and they'll give me a gauge on the other sizes i'm glad i did because this is an extra large no. yeah israelis must be really small people that's all i can say anyway i don't know their sizing is like the chinese it's just no. yeah, yeah yeah skimpy t-shirt companies that's right so and then when it's washed it's going to fit absolutely perfectly because it fits nice now but it's going to be just yeah anyway okay so there you go if you go to israel buy the extra 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 large if you're bigger than me okay um there you go so verse 7 10 now to the married i command yet not i but the lord a wife is not to depart from her husband all right so far paul has been addressing the unmarried and those considering marriage he now turns to those who are married and begins with not now to the married i command this is something that is expected to be adhered to at all costs and it's not up to the audience's wishes or desires it is a set fixed and firm rule i will tell you this before i go on when somebody emails me and they ask for an out on marriage I just quote the Bible because I'm not here to give outs. That's not my job. If people want an out, they've got to find that in themselves because all I can do is say, this is what the Lord has said. And I know people that attend this church. I'm not going to say who it is, but they've had this issue come up within the greater family. And they have come to me and said, what do we do about this situation? Because this is a very tense situation within the family. I said, this is what the word says. And guess what? That family is still together after how many years? Okay because they said we're going to put the lord first regardless of the situation and so this is something that you must decide i am going to be obedient to the lord it doesn't matter if you are happy in your marriage the bible doesn't say anything about that look in here and tell me where it says in this book that you are to be happy in your marriage most people in old times were uh, no they they were probably happy i i will tell you my mother said that they were unhappy i i will tell you this most of the people that were married back then were married that their wives were chosen for them or the daughters were sold off not sold off but they were dowried off and i will tell you this okay when you marry in that capacity when you say, I'm going to marry and I'm going to live according to God's word. And this is all over the world. This isn't just Israel. This is all over the world where people have had their wives pick for them or their husbands pick for them. It was beyond their choice. They were actually very happy. And when people, from time to time, I will post it on Facebook, but when people email me with their problems with their marriage, okay, and they say, I'm not happy in my marriage. I'm not happy in my marriage. I need a divorce. I want to get out of this. I always send them a link to the same song. Anybody know what song I send them? Called Do You Love Me from Fiddler on the Roof. And it, it says it exactly the way that we have it wrong in America. In America, we get, we fall in love. And we, this is so great. And we have all of these emotions going on. And then all of a sudden, would somebody help this person here? I think she needs some help. Hey, come up here before you uh, before you sit down. This is my wife. So come here. 
come up here. I, we want Mary to see what you've done today. So, um, and then I will continue explaining because do you love me? She stuck with me. She stuck with me. Come here and let her every, sit right next to me so Mary can see the shirt. We're wearing matching shirts from Israel. Thank you very much, Mary. There you go. <laughs> She's shy. She's shy. Okay, so. Oh, her knee always hurts and her feet hurt too. So that's why, you know, no shoes in a Japanese house. People that come over and then what does she do? She wears shoes because she has to. They're indoor shoes because she's got feet that hurt. Anyway, we'll go on. Um, do you love me? If you've never watched the song, I would like you to click on it on YouTube. Just type in, do you love me, Fiddler on the Roof? And you will watch it and you will understand what I'm talking about. She says, or he says, this is the, the man, they've got all these problems with these daughters that are getting, I want to, I love this guy, I want to get married. And he's like, what are you talking about? I picked the husband, you know, and then one ends up marrying a goy, a Gentile. And so, you know, everything is bad in this guy's life. But the husband is starting to wonder about his own marriage because they've been married 26 years. And what does he do? He stops while she's working, cooking or something, and he says, Koda. Do you love me? And the song begins from there. Oh, stop. What are you talking about? You're talking like a foolish man. They'd never said they loved each other. They'd been married 26 years and they had been committed in a marriage, which is what God expects, regardless of emotion. But at the end of the song, she says, I cooked for you for 26 years. I cleaned up after you and I raised these daughters for you. And he says, I've done this. And they're talking back and forth in song to each other. And at the end, they says, I guess this is what love is. And they found out that they're in love with each other after 26 years of marriage. So this is what the Bible expects of us. It does not expect for us to be happy in our marriage. As mom said, they were all unhappy anyway. Okay. But that is, that is what the Bible asks us. Forget the happy. For, talk about miserable. She's sitting in the back corner right now. She's got to put up with me every day. But she has been a faithful wife all of these years, despite my failings. Okay. It is a set, fixed, and firm rule. We need to understand that. If anybody here is watching this and saying, I'm thinking about getting a divorce, that is not authorized in the Bible. If you do, guess what? If you're a saved Christian, you are not going to lose your salvation. All right? And I will tell people that. But you will be judged for your actions as a human being when you stand before the Lord and say, I severed my marriage because I wasn't happy. Okay? There are reasons to get divorced in the Bible. We will go through them. We're getting into those verses right now. But in this case, happiness is not one of them. Okay? Being financially insecure is not one of them. These things may cause stress. They may cause tension. But they are not reasons for getting a divorce. They are not. Okay? You have to say, am I going to take God's standard and apply it to who I am as an individual? Or am I going to flip my... my attitude off at him and just say, I'm going to do it, right? I'm just going to be flipping about it, okay? And to further bolster this, he adds, yet not I, but the Lord. In other words, this is a command based on the words of Jesus Christ. Paul is taking extreme care to show that his words are the Lord's words. They are fixed and they are inviolable. That is what is expected. If you get married and you find out that her feet stink, live with it. You know, get nose plugs. That is not in issue that you can, I, I got some people laughing, that's what I was hoping for, is you have to think everything through. It doesn't matter what the, the issue is. You stay together. If you want to sleep in different rooms, hey, if you can handle that, whatever. But you are not to get a divorce 
under those circumstances. As I said, there are circumstances, but the Lord would say, I wouldn't say he's commanded. That's all we need to know. Are we going to be obedient or are we not? The reason for this, uh, I'm sorry, um, I, yes, and the command from the Lord, which is retransmitted by Paul, is that a wife is not to depart from her husband. If a person is married, they are to remain married. It is a solemn agreement to one another that was conducted in the presence of God, regardless as to whether they were believers at the time. It is also regardless of whether one or both since have called on Christ. Everybody needs to understand that. We're going to talk about that more as we go on, so don't get ahead of us. But if you were unsaved and you got married, you have to remain married. If you are saved after getting married, you need to remain married. If one of you is not saved and the other is, you, the believer, must remain married. As I said, there's a qualifier coming up, but that is God's standard for you. Anything else is disobedience. Anything else will lead you to be judged. You're not going to lose your salvation. You may lose your happiness because you marry somebody that you thought was good, and then you find out that what you had before was even better. The grass is always greener on the other side, and you get there and you find out that it's not so green after all. Whatever. Okay? Think it through before you make these decisions and say, I'm going to put the Lord first. That's what he wants of you. The reason for this instruction probably came about because of a question from Christian spouses who may have been concerned as to whether it was unlawful for them to be married to one who is a pagan. It is also possible that Paul's earlier words about it being good for individuals to remain unmarried may be misconstrued to mean that separating is acceptable and even the favorable position. Just trying to think through what has prompted him to say this. Well, the answer is that God is telling him through his spirit what to say so that all contingencies are taken care of, and they will be. By the time we're done with chapter 7, they will all be done. But the Lord's words on this issue must stand. And they are those spoken by him in the Gospels, including Mark chapter 10. I'll take you there right now. And I'll take you there while I'm talking about this, Mark chapter 10. This brings me up back to what I said last week on uh, hyper-dispensationalism and the fact that you are to be baptized. That is a command directly from the Lord. And that is not for the Jews when they're evangelizing the Gentiles. That is a command for the Lord forever. If you don't get baptized, and I'm talking about water baptism after receiving Jesus Christ, you are being disobedient to the Lord. That's all there is to it. You're being disobedient. Now, there's no set time frame. You don't have to do it the next day. You don't have to do it. You can do it next month when you have the church gathering, whatever. But you are to be baptized scripturally. That is what the Lord says to do. So Mark chapter 10 and verse 11, it says, So he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife, and marries another can, commits adultery against her. And if a woman divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. And why? You know, he explained this to them in the uh, Gospels. I'm just going to touch on this really quickly because I'll probably bring it up again here later. But, you know, they came and they said, Lord, can we divorce for any and every reason? And the reason why is because in the law of Moses, it says that if a man wants to divorce a woman, he writes her certificate of divorce and sends her away. And they said, is, is there any reason that we can't do that? And he says, listen, he gave that to you because of the hardness of your hearts. But the intent was that when you got married from the very beginning, you stayed married forever. Now, we can assume, we can just assume that Adam and Eve were probably married right at the very beginning. I mean, within, you know, certainly before, you know, but 
however long it was before that time he gave her to him and it may have been that that was considered a marriage right on the first day whatever it was right there at the beginning the Isaac he said he went into the tent What's that? Not Isaac. I'm talking about Adam and Eve. I know that, oh. but Isaac was... The oh, went in a tent. But, you know, they may have had a marriage ritual. It, 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 it does... Yes, she went into him, but that that's just saying that they became husband and wife. That's a way of saying them. They may have had a marriage ritual. But with Adam and Eve, they were married right from the beginning. And, I mean, as long as she lived, which it doesn't say how long she lived, but if she lived 930 years like he did, he was married for 930 years. We don't know that, but... However long she lived, they remained married that whole time. Now, people ask, and this is a diversion because it came to mind and people are always asking this question. Where did Cain get his wife? Can anybody answer that question? Genesis. That's exactly right. Genesis chapter 5 says that Adam had, and it lists Seth as the son of the line going down to Messiah. Okay, that's why he's there. But he had Cain and Abel. Abel got killed by Cain. But it says he had other sons and daughters. And in 930 years, if she lived that long and if she was capable of producing, she could have had a lot of children. So now they have brothers and sisters, they intermarry there, and then you have nieces and nephews and you've got cousins. And very quickly, that world would be populated. And people fail to understand that they just interbred. And there was no prohib that's prohibition. Man, no yeah, that's prepared. right. And there was no prohibi prohibition to that at the time. Not until the time of Abraham did or even after the time of Abraham, I'm sorry, even after the time of Abraham, people were still marrying their sisters, as Abraham did with his half-sister Sarai, okay? It wasn't until the law of Moses that that was not permitted any longer, okay? And that's obviously, there's a reason for it, is the gene pool would have started to degrade eventually, okay? And we know that if you look at the lifespans of the people, they make a geometric curve after the flood. They go down a very certain way, which you wouldn't have known until they had things graphed out, but it makes a geometric curve down to the current rate of lifespan, and it stayed there ever since. But we know that at the time they could interbreed and there wouldn't have been any of the problems that we have today. Problems are very easily solved. So let's go on from there. Um, the issue of divorce wasn't merely a dispensational issue. I just quoted you from Mark chapter 10 and 11. It wasn't a dispensational is issue, meaning under the time of the law or during the church age and so on. Instead, it is an issue which transcends dispensations, and it is an eternal decree. Marriages are not to be treated carelessly, and married people are to remain married until death. Paul will explain why as he continues, and he will also provide other pertinent information concerning marriage and divorce. Okay, before I go on, another thought just came to mind. This is a subject that's real touchy with people. Obviously, people have been divorced. People, you know, eggs get broken. Okay, and when you scramble them up, you can't unscramble them. Okay, there's no point in trying to unscramble them. But if you have been divorced as a Christian, just don't do it again. Don't test the Lord. All right, live according to his standard and say, I'm going to commit to this even if I am unhappy. Because we've already been told by my mother that all the people before were unhappy. And so we know that it's true. Mom is never wrong. And so if you're unhappy, just live with it. Okay. In the end, there is only one exception to the rule on divorce, which is if a spouse commits adultery. adultery. Thank you. In our society, we will look for any and every excuse to be disobedient to this command. But there is none other than adultery. Let us pay heed to these words and consider them carefully. The Lord has spoken, and our obedience is expected. Life application. 
it is a light thing to ignore. Is it a light thing to ignore Jesus' words concerning marriage? No. If we are willing to violate his command on this issue, then what type of follower does that show us to be? Let us remain united to the one we chose as our spouse and never dare to ignore the commands of Christ. And that means all of them. If Christ has commanded something, and that means in context, in the dispensation which you are in, then you need to live with it, including baptism, including uh, sexual immorality, including all of the things that is commanded in the Lord. Um, I'll talk about one command on Sunday. You know, people talk about tithing, people talk about Christian giving, whatever, okay? There are commands on that issue as well. We will define them in detail on Sunday so that people don't walk out into the world and get confused by some pastor that says one thing, which is untrue, and with they, which they probably had beat over their head for the past however many years they've been born, okay? We're gonna talk about that in detail, and when you leave, I hope you'll be satisfied because I will go through every permutation of that issue that you can imagine, and it is an important one, at least to me. So, um, first, 7-Eleven. 7-Eleven, I work there, work there every day. And then what do I do on Thursday before coming here? I stop at 7-Eleven and I buy my red hot beef and bean burrito. Yes, and I eat it on the way over here. So that's that's my, my uh, yeah, 7-Eleven red hot. Uh, I get the same stomach ache every single Thursday. It is wonderful. Yes, yes, 7-Eleven, here we go. But even if she does depart, this is if a woman departs from her husband, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And a husband is not to divorce his wife, okay? As I said, some things get scrambled and you cannot unscramble them. You have to move forward in life. You, you know, there's some things that you cannot do. And people will say, well, I can never, I've had a lot of people email me this issue. I'm trying to think of things that people are gonna email about because Unless I say it, they'll say, well, what about my situation? Somebody gets married and the wife leaves. Okay, now he's single. He thinks he's got to stay single the rest of his life. And she's gone out and remarried. He is no longer bound to that. She's broken the bonds of the marriage. And she is, in essence, committed adultery with another person. So he is no longer under that, that bond at all in any way, shape, or form. She is left and she has married another person. There's nothing. The egg is scrambled. It cannot be undone. He is free to marry and vice versa. Same thing with the woman. If he goes out and he marries somebody else, she is not obligated to spend the rest of her life unmarried. If they are both unmarried and he thinks that she may come back to him someday, he better not get remarried. That's what the implication is here. So they need to wait. But if she says, well, I'm, you know, I found another guy, too late. It's done. All right. So you just need to think these issues through. All right. And it just... Most of it is just common sense. The Lord says, don't do it. Just don't do it. But there are issues that come up that people need to be aware of. So um, verse 7, 11, this verse follows on from the instruction in verse 10. It is another regularly neglected and abused tenet from scripture. And yet it is clear and it is concise. <clears throat> if a woman has departed from her husband, she needs to remain unmarried. Excuses as to why a woman left her husband with the noted exception of adultery are irrelevant. No other words are given which negate this precept. And Paul's words here are not merely cultural or passing away because people will say that oh, it's a cultural thing. That was the Corinthian. No, this is all we have in the Bible for this particular situation. This is it. And because this is all we have, this is what we must live by. No other words are given which negate this precept. And Paul's words here are not cultural. They are not 
passing away. They are doctrine for the church. To disobey them is to disobey the Lord who inspired the words through Paul's hand. And so in this case, and I say the Lord, it's the Holy Spirit that inspired him, but the Spirit is the Spirit of the Lord. Thank you. And so in this case, the woman is to remain unmarried or, as Paul says, be reconciled to her husband. This brings up an obvious problem, though. What if the husband is, oh, I just talked about it. What if the husband has gone and gotten remarried? I shouldn't preempt myself, but if I get an idea and I know that somebody's going to email about it, I'd like to get it out. So we'll just hear it again now. In this case, it would imply that the marriage bond is irretrievably broken, blah, 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 and therefore she would be free from this constraint. However, it is not explicitly, but only implicitly to be inferred. No matter what, the stricter judgment on this matter is preferred. It is not acceptable for a woman to leave her husband and go to marry another. But there is more. Paul then explains that a husband is not to divorce his wife. This follows on from Jesus' words of Matthew chapter 5. I think I read it already, but I'm going to read it again. Maybe it's a different passage from there. That's Luke. Let me get there really quickly. Matthew chapter 5, and it says in verse 32, Oh yes, but I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason, except sexual immorality, causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. These, yes. What about violence? What's that? I, I, I get emailed that all the time. That is one of them, violence. He asks, what about violence? All right. What I would do, I understand that. What I would do is I would call the police and have him incarcerated. But it does not give violence as a reason for getting divorced. Okay? You don't want to be around a violent person? Don't be around them. Separate yourselves from them. But, yeah, that, that, the, I cannot give an exception that the Lord does not give. And I've been asked that many, many times. Violence does not, is not a reason in the Bible. Now, if you want to get divorced, that's your choice. You're going to lose some rewards. You're being disobedient. You're not going to lose your salvation. That's your choice. But the Bible does not allow me, as a teacher, to say, yes, violence justifies divorce. Okay? I cannot do that. People want me to do that. I'm not going to do it. All I can say is that there are options. Have them arrested. Whatever. But, you know, hitman. Oh, I didn't say that. Anyway, I was kidding. Anyway, but, you know, there, there, are, there are things that I can't do. And one of them is to teach you to violate scripture. I'm not going to do that. But I get asked that question many, many times. I've got a daughter that's being abused by her husband. I've got a grandson that's abusing his wife and we love her and he's a terrible. I, get, I hear this all the time. Okay. I cannot tell somebody to violate scripture. I'm not going to do that, okay? We must hold scripture, and if there isn't an out, all I can say is think of a way to reconcile it or to, to have him arrested, get him out of your life, but you're gonna have to remain single is what he says right there. You're going to have to bear the weight of that. Once again, we're not happy in marriage. You know, poor Hitiko, she stuck it out anyway. Okay, um, let's see here. These words from the Lord and also Paul show us that the marriage bond within the Christian context is to be held in the highest regard and is to, is to be considered sacred. It is a violation of the will of the Lord for couples to divorce for any reason except adultery. Life application. When you said, I do, you were confining yourself before God to the bonds of a marriage that are not to be dissolved except through death. Divorce is not an acceptable alternative to unhappiness. Having said I do, you should always be content with the thought that I still do. 
okay? I know that's difficult. I know that that is something I just can't teach you otherwise. Do whatever you want in this life. You have to make the decision. I cannot violate scripture to make somebody happy, and I'm not going to do it. Verse 7, 12. Uh, but to the rest, I, not the Lord, say, if any brother has a wife who does not believe, here it is, and she is willing to live with him, let her not divorce let him not divorce her. And then he's going to give the opposite in a verse ahead. But here we go. Paul has addressed those who wish to remain celibate, those who are widowed, and those who are married. However, he will now discuss a new group, and his words are immensely important. The reason why will be given, but it actually deals with those who are affected by the marriage as much as those who are married. The issue he will now address is that of mixed marriages, whether one is a believer and one is not. To begin, he says, but to the rest I, not the Lord, say. He's very careful to mark a distinction between the directives personally given by the Lord and those that are given by him. His words, however, have no less import than those of the Lord. This is because they are a part of the Bible, which is God's word. They are given under the inspiration of the Spirit and must be considered authoritative. And so he begins with, if any brother has a wife, who does not believe. When he says brother, obviously we're speaking about a believer. The wife does not believe. And she is willing to live with him. Let him not divorce her. That option is now out. We cannot say she's an unbeliever. You can divorce her. He has completely removed that from. So if I'm married to a pagan and I come to Christ or I make the mistake of marrying a pagan while I am a Christian, I am stuck. I cannot divorce that person. Okay, a believing man with a non-believing spouse may not divorce her because she is an unbeliever. He got himself into the marriage and he has no right, with the previously noted exception of adultery, to terminate the marriage. The fact that he is or became a believer and she is a non-believer is irrelevant. He is obligated to his vows and he must stay with her no matter what. Again, reasons will be given for this, and they will not only affect the husband and the wife, but others as well. And it includes a reason that addresses a theological issue which goes all the way back to the fall of man. Life application. As with the previous verses, we can clearly see that there is no reason, apart from adultery, to terminate a marriage. We cannot excuse our actions in divorce. And yet divorces become as common as going to the store for groceries. The Lord cannot be pleased with flagrant disregard of this by his people. I was, when I had my shop, I was just a new Christian, but I had already read enough where I understood this precept. And I had a shop where I sold things from Asia and I'd drive down to Miami to pick up shipments and I'd get a rental van to do that. And while I was in a rental van, line the lady in front of me was getting a rental car and she was saying she's talking about going to church and she says and then she says oh i just got divorced my fifth divorce or something and i thought oh yeah she's like bragging about it and she's saying she's a christian she goes to this you know whatever church so i and i thought you know she just she obviously doesn't understand what the word of god says and, and nobody's taking the time to tell her so there you go um let's see here so verse seven thirteen. And a woman who has a husband, here we go, the opposite, who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. So he's gone male to female, and now he's going female to male. He's covering every base possible so that we understand the importance of this issue. 
This verse is a flip side of what Paul said in verse 12. If any brother has a wife she who does not believe and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. By saying this, he is confirming that there is no excuse by either spouse, if a believer, for leaving the marriage relationship. They are bound to their oath regardless if it was made before conversion or not. And even if the other spouse fails to call on Christ, the reason for his words are coming in the next verse. And they show the immense importance of remaining married even to an unbeliever. Life application, we are expected to remain committed to our spouse. We are not granted wiggle room in this. There's no wiggle room, okay? First, you might be in a straitjacket, okay? And even in a straitjacket, you can wiggle a little bit. Oh, who was it? Harry Houdini proved that. I'm sorry, there's no wiggle room. Verse, according to the word, once again, everybody has their choices in life. We all have choices. The only thing I won't do is go against the word of God. People can do whatever they want. You know, I'm not their judge, okay? All I'm here to do is to teach what I'm given. And I, I just have to be careful with this. Okay, so 714. Four, here it is. The unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, here it is, your children would be unclean. But now, they're holy. Everybody understand the reason why you are not to get divorced, even if your wife isn't a believer, is because that sanctifies the children. And we're going to find out about that right now. Because people have this issue way wrong. I'm going to tell you what, they have this issue way wrong. Paul now states the truth about marriage that affects the children of the marriage. It is a tenet which is so remarkable that this verse should be remembered by every believer. If somebody asks me this question or anything related to it, I always say, and I don't need to hesitate, 1 Corinthians 7, verse 14. It's ingrained in my mind because it is such an important verse. There is a premise in the Bible which is inescapable and which goes all the way back to the fall of man. I say it at the end of almost every sermon on Sunday. What is it that I say? Can anybody tell me, preempt me on this? Sin is inherited. Sin is inherited. I always give the example of Abraham. Circumcision is the picture of the coming Christ. We all have a human father. Everybody understand that? Every You are a female. You're a male. You both have human fathers. We inherit sin through the father, not through the mother. Okay? And they've actually shown this through DNA. All right? And they also show it, if you think of it, a woman can have AIDS, and that baby in her womb can be born without AIDS. She is a receptacle for bearing that child. The sin travels from father to child. Circumcision was given as a picture. God is cutting the sin nature. Okay? That's the picture. Everybody understand the picture? We cut the male, not the female. Muslims cut the female. Okay? They also cut the male in some of their Muslim cultures, but, okay, they've got it all backwards. It is sin traveling from father to child, father to child. A human had to be born without a human father in order to get us out of this mess. Everybody understand that? Christ came born of the Holy Spirit and of a woman, not a man. And so the sin nature was cut. He cut it. Now we can go into Christ. We become in Christ and we go from dead to alive. Everybody got that? It is a theological move from being dead to being alive. What does that tell you? Every single human being that has been conceived on this planet 
is dead. Okay, let's go on. People don't like talking about this, but this is what the Bible teaches. This is why Paul is saying this. There is a premise in the Bible which is inescapable. I'm going to read this again, and which goes all the way back to the fall of man. God created our first father, Adam. At this time, there was a spiritual connection between man and his God. However, Adam gave a warning. Adam was given a warning in Genesis chapter 2. Here's what it says in Genesis chapter 2. I could have written a book on this. I only did about a page, I think. But anyway, Genesis chapter 2 and verse 16, it says, I'm going to go back to 15. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden. He was created outside of the garden. He was rested, rested in the garden and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and keep it. That's actually not a good translation. It's to worship and to praise the creator. But that's go back and watch that sermon and you'll understand that. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Did he eat of the fruit? Yes. Did he die? Well, he didn't die for 930 years physically. Spiritually, he was cut off at that moment. And that dead state has been inherited by every human being since then. We are not born alive. We are born spiritually dead. As I say time and again, go out in the world and look around and there are just walking dead people everywhere. You don't know which ones are alive and you don't know which ones are dead. And so it is your job as a human being that is in Christ to tell them about how to become regenerated and to become a believer in Christ and to be reconnected to God, because that's the only way it's going to happen. That's why those tracks are there. And when they get empty, I'm going to put more in there because hopefully they'll be empty soon because everybody has a responsibility to tell people about this. This is one of the most important, it is, it's the most important issue that any person will ever face. And we just disregard it. We ignore it. All right. The narrative goes on to show that Adam disobeyed God. However, he continued to live until the age of 930 years. This shows one of two possibilities. One, either God, what he said was not true, or two, the man did die spiritually. The second is correct. And it is the premise of, you know how the Jews get around this? They say, oh, well, a day to the Lord is a thousand years and he lived 930 years, so he died the first day. And so he didn't, yeah, that's not what that's speaking about at all. Okay, it is true that a day to the Lord is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day, but that is not what he was speaking of. He didn't understand that. And all we had was a Genesis account at that time, which said morning and evening and morning one day. Evening and morning, the second, or yeah, second day, etc., until you get to day six, and then you get day seven, and we go on from there in that. So all we have at this point is one day is a 24-hour day. You will die on the day that you eat it, and he died. And they knew it because they did what? They covered themselves. They understood that the connection was gone, okay? Uh, we could go on with this all night long. I'm not going to, but go back and watch the sermon starting in number one and all the way through the book of Genesis and then go into Exodus and then Leviticus and then Numbers and you will see what is called, and I'm going to mention it in the sermon on Sunday, progressive revelation. God is progressively revealing himself to the people of the world through different dispensations and through different applications and things that he is doing so that we understand when we get to the coming of Christ in the fullness of time, I get it. I was talking to a girl today who's wanting to go be a missionary. She's got $500 a month more to go, and then she will be able to go. She cannot come in and talk to us because she cannot be on the Internet. 
They've forbidden that because she's going to a specialized country, but she's related to the people that sit up here who are not here today because, oh, I forgot to tell you this, Miss Magnuson fell and hurt herself. And so she uh, she's okay, but she fell and hurt herself. And so um, we want to keep her in prayer as well. I just saw him right before I got here today. Anyway, um, uh, I forgot the point that I was making about her, but... Um, so yes, and she's going over. Oh, she needs money for funding, and then I was going to make a point. It'll come back to me in a minute. Um, anyway, so um, uh, we'll go on with that. The second is the correct option. Was it God wasn't true, or that man did die? He died spiritually. The second is correct, and it is the premise of the Bible from that point on. Adam became a physical being with a soul, but no spiritual connection to God. He died spiritually. And Paul speaks of that, about that. We're going to, oh, I'm going to refer to it. I won't get ahead of myself. What is implied throughout the rest of Scripture is that men are born into Adam. Paul says it in 1 Corinthians 15. He says it elsewhere. Men are born into Adam. He is our federal head. I didn't vote for our previous president. You couldn't have paid me to vote for him. You couldn't have threatened me to vote for him. But he became my federal head when he was elected the presidents, to the presidency, unfortunately. I did vote for our current federal head, and a lot of other people didn't. And they don't want to agree to the laws that he signs, but he is our federal head, okay? We are physical beings with a soul, but no spiritual connection to God, because we are in Adam. Everybody got that? Is anybody that's not in Adam in Christ? I'm sorry, vice versa. Is anybody who is in Adam in Christ? No, you're either in Adam or you are in Christ, and that is it. Those are the only two options for human beings, okay? We are conceived in sin. Where does it say that in the Bible? 51st Psalm. 51st Psalm. Very good. Verse number five. Very good. Let's read it. Good job, Burke. He got that perfectly. Psalm 51, verse five. We're going to go there. People can say whatever they want about this verse. It is clear. It is explicit. And God would not have included in his word if it was not correct. Okay. Here's what it says. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me because his mother slept with a man who was born of Adam in sin my mother conceived me okay there you go and it goes on it says um, they are spiritually dead and thus all are condemned already where is that recorded well I'm thinking more of John 318 that's okay. Romans 5 does speak of our, our, uh, that nature, but I'm thinking of the exact words. John 3, verse 18, it says there. Um, it's not that's right. It says, he who believes is not condemned, but he who does not believe is, there you go, condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Okay? You were dead already. That is from the moment that you were conceived, you were in Adam, and it is the way you will always be. There is no way to reconcile that apart from Christ. That's the only way it's going to happen. Okay, we'll go on. Also, we'll go really quickly to Ephesians chapter 2. And it says there, and you. Yeah, you got it. He made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. You were dead. There is nothing you could do about it. You were dead. Now, R.C. Sproul, unfortunately, and Reformed theologians take that to an unintended extreme. He says, you could no more regenerate yourself than a rock 
could make itself come alive. Okay, and he uses that under the premise that we have no part in our salvation. Okay, and so he's saying that there's we do not receive Jesus Christ. He regenerates us. We believe we are born again, and then after being born again, we believe, and then we are saved. That's what Reformed theologians say. That is a category mistake because what they miss is that we are not dead physical beings. We are dead spiritual beings. The fact that we can think, the fact that we can choose, I can see what's good and I can see what's bad, that is what the Bible teaches. I can choose Christ, but I have nothing to do with my salvation. Why? Because he did it all. He did all of the work. There is no thing that I can do to be saved that does not negate the fact that I must receive Jesus Christ. That is a category mistake that Calvinism, that Reformed theologians make. Okay, that's not a heresy, by the way. That is simply really poor doctrine. Okay, you must receive Christ. It says it at least 20 different ways in the Bible. Receive, believe, this, call on, do this and do that. I mean, it says it again and again. And you would think that after the fifth or sixth different way of saying it, people would figure that out. No, you're a rock. You can't do anything to save yourself. I'm alive. I can see Christ. He saved me. I'm going to receive that. That's all we need to do with that one. Okay, this is actually confirmed what I just read from being spiritually dead, confirmed implicitly in the account of Cain and Abel. They brought an offering to the Lord without the Bible noting any offense. That's the first thing it does, right? Let's go back there and let's read it. Let's go back just so you understand what I'm saying. And if you don't understand it after this, go back and watch the sermon and I probably bring it up. I may not have, but here's what it says. Adam knew Eve uh, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. I explained that. It's very clear what she thinks is happening. You're going, the seed of the woman is going to bring you back to paradise. What did she think? He's the redeemer. So she said, I have acquired a man with the Lord. She's taking credit for her own salvation. I have acquired a man with the Lord. Now there's two types of with in the Bible. You've got with as in a typewriter. I typed this novel da, 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 with a typewriter, okay? There's another type of with. I have typed this novel with Berkeley Carico. He did something, right? But if it was me with the typewriter, Burke didn't do anything, the typewriter didn't do anything, I did the action. She is saying, I have done this with the Lord. She has participated in her salvation. Everybody got that? She's thinking that. That's why she called him Cain. I have acquired a man. Okay, Cainan, acquire. And then what does it say in the next verse? Then she bore again, this time his brother Abel. What does Abel come from? Anybody know? Hevel, Hevelim. I was about to quote Ecclesiastes uh, 1, 2, I think it is. Anyway, and I forgot the words. Um, it, Hevel. It means breath. His name means breath. Why would she call him breath? It's breath that you can see on a cold day, and then it disappears. That's why it's translated in the Bible as vanity of vanities. All is vanity. She's saying it's pointless. She understood. I've got another child. I've got to clean up after this one, and the first one didn't do anything. He didn't redeem me, and I'm stuck with bearing children for 930 years or whatever, okay? That was her attitude. She realized, I'm not going back to paradise. You can see the, the futility in her heart. And imagine how glorious it must have been in paradise. 
for her to feel this way, to say, I have acquired a man with the Lord, jubilant over it, and then the desperation of, it's all just vapor. I misunderstood. It is not going to be this child or this child. I've got to clean up children for the rest of my life. Whatever is waiting for us in glory, it is going to be, it's worth not getting divorced. It's worth not being disobedient. It's worth everything that you do in this life for God. It is worth it and more. I guarantee you, just read that and think on her state. Let's go on. It says, then she bore again this time his brother Abel, Hevel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. Here it is. The first thing that's recorded after they're born. And it came to pass in, in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. And then it talks about going on from there. What does that tell you right there? They know that there's a spiritual disconnect from God because they have to make an offering. That's what the Lord is trying to tell us with that. You think, well, why does it even say that? It's because there's a problem. The problem is already there. You want to know how bad this problem is in us? The first person recorded as being born ever in human history was a murderer of his own brother. That's how bad the infection is inside of us. Okay. They may have had other brothers and sisters before them. The Bible does not say either way. It just says that they bore a son, Cain. The naming of him implies that he is the first. The naming of Abel implies that he is the second or third or fourth, whatever. But she's understood by the two children that redemption is not what she thought it was. Okay? So I would venture to say 100% that Cain was the firstborn. Okay? But it doesn't say that. All we can do is just go by what she has said, what the Lord has recorded, and then they, without any other information having been given, brought an offering. Okay? They brought an offering to the Lord without the Bible noting any offense committed by them before the offering was made. Normally in the Bible, when somebody does something wrong, then they go and make an offering. Or when an offering is mandated, it says, when you do wrong, you will bring this offering or this offering, depending on what you've done wrong or depending on the circumstances. Okay. In essence, the implication is that they understood this spiritual disconnect existed in them. And the fact that sin reigned is evident by the actions of Cain, who killed his brother. Thus, Paul's words, all have sinned, confirms that we are born in sin. It is inherited, and we are born separate from God, spiritually dead. That's all confirmed explicitly and also implicitly in the Bible. Time and again, the Bible uses this concept of being in someone to remind us that we are all descendants of Adam by blood, and thus we are all in Adam. That's recorded explicitly in Acts 17, verses 26 through 20. Let's read that just so you know what I'm talking about. We were all from one person, every one of us. I'm going to go there really quick. Acts 17, 26, it says, And he made from one blood, or one man, every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth, and has determined their pre-appointed times, and the boundaries of their dwellings. And then it goes on. So that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. All right? So we are all from one man. Everybody needs to understand that. This is why there are such meticulous genealogies recorded in both Testaments of the Bible. It is to show that connection all the way back to Adam, who was created by God. 
When Adam sinned, we therefore sinned in Adam. Paul explains this. Yes, very good. Romans 5, verse 12. Let me take you there now. <clears throat> Romans 5. Therefore, just as through one man, Adam, our federal head, sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all sinned. Without sinning, without having done one thing ever being conceived, David sinned just by being conceived. He was in sin the moment that he came into existence. That is explicit. There is nothing we can do about it. It doesn't matter what you think. The only thing that matters is what the Bible says. And the Bible says that we are all dead from the moment that we were conceived. Okay? There's only one way to be regenerated, and that is because one man came that wasn't born of Adam. You're in Adam or you're in Christ. And that is it. So we'll go on. Where are we? Oh, I've lost my page. Okay, there we go. So uh, let's see here. Um, uh, Jesus came to repair this spiritual disconnect. Without him, there is no hope for restoration to God. Only through him can the breach be repaired. Understanding the right of circumcision, and I've already said it will help us comprehend this. I'm going to read it again just so you get it. Circumcision was given as a sign to the covenant people. It pictures cutting away the inherited sin because that sin transfers through the father. Thus, by cutting the male organ, the sin is pictured to be cut away. As it was only a picture, as everything we've seen in all of the Leviticus and number sermons, everything is just a picture. It doesn't... We have this animal, which is given for the atonement of the people. Hairy goat, right? Everybody remember that? Leviticus chapter 16 and uh, Leviticus chapter 23, the day of atonement. Hairy goat. And then they have other sacrifices and offerings as well. Did those animals take away the sin of the people? No, because it says in Hebrews, the blood of bulls and goats cannot, cannot take away sin. It's a picture. Everything in the old, everything. As a matter of fact, in the book of Hebrews, they are called parabole, a parable. Everything in the Old Testament, everything is a parable of what is coming in Christ. Okay, so the inherited sin, because the sin transfers through the Father, thus by cutting the male organ, the sin is pictured to be cut away. As it was only a picture, the covenant people waited for the Messiah who could actually fulfill the picture. When Jesus came, he was born of a woman, thus he is fully human. But without a human father, he inherited no sin from Adam. His father being God, thus he is fully God, meant that he was born without sin. Therefore, he was qualified to replace Adam. The four Gospels are then given to provide a record of his life. He was born without sin, just as Adam was created without sin. But he still needed to live without sin. The Gospels show this to be the case. He lived without sin prevailed over the law, and he died under the law without sin. There, does everybody understand everything that I've just said? Should I read that again? You got that? Everybody got that? Okay. The Gospels show it to be the case. He lived without sin. He prevailed over the law and died under the law without sin. Therefore, he prevailed over sin. In him, sin, and thus spiritual death, is defeated. The Lamb had overcome. So what does this have to do with 1 Corinthians 7 verse 14? Paul says, for the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife. He's not saved. He's sanctified. It's not dealing. You think he's talking about marriage here. 
That's not what he's talking about at all. He's talking about the children. And the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. This does not mean that they are saved through the unbelieving spouse, but it sanctifies them for a very important reason. And that reason is that otherwise, your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. It's the children that he's dealing with in this issue. Marriage is that important that it takes you back to the very first moments of man's existence on this planet, is that the children are considered in this. The inherited sin of Adam exists in all people from the moment of conception. We are conceived, born, and live separate from God until the time that we call on Christ and are spiritually regenerated. That's John 3, 16, the book of Romans chapter 8. We could go on and on. Ephesians says it. If we never call on Christ, we will die in Adam and thus separate from God. But in his great mercy, God has allowed these children of a believer to be regarded as holy until the time that they are old enough to choose or reject Christ. Nothing unclean can enter into God's presence. If you don't know that from the book of Leviticus, you did not pay attention to those sermons. Nothing unclean can enter into God's presence. And therefore, no, this is going to upset people. I'm going to lose subscribers. Every time I say this, I get people angry at me. I didn't write this book, and I did not dream up this theology. This is what the Bible teaches. No child is saved at any age without Christ's covering. If that was true, it would be better that we aborted all children and just be done with it. In the case of a Christian family, though, these children are set apart. However, if the marriage is dissolved by the believer, the believer, this is lost. Therefore, the sanctification of the parents is necessary to provide this set-apart state for the children. Without it, they are no longer set apart. This may sound like a cruel and uncaring God, but it is exactly the opposite. He allows us free will. From Adam to us, we have made our choices and we must live by them. Adam made the choice for all of us and we are stuck with that choice. Unless we come to Christ, we are stuck. Therefore, what we perceive as uncaring is actually a demonstration of the greatest grace and mercy imaginable. I didn't write this theology. God did. This is what the Bible teaches, and I will never give somebody an answer that I don't believe adheres to Scripture. And that's what you get from Charlie Garrett in 1 Corinthians 7, 14. Life application. Our earthly choices can have spiritual consequences that we don't even realize unless we study and then adhere to the Bible's precepts. Let us also never impute wrongdoing or a state of uncaring to God. Rather, let us exalt him for his unmerited grace and mercy because that's what grace is, unmerited. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. Grace is, not getting, is getting what you do not deserve. Jesus, excuse me, 715. Yeah, they're holy. If that guy takes the children away, they're no longer set apart as holy. I understand that, but if you have a husband that's not a believer and a wife that's a believer, the children are sanctified. They're sanctified, set apart as holy until they can make whatever choice. The Lord knows these things. There is no set age in the Bible. They're sanctified as holy. That's all I'm going to say. I'm not here to guess what the Lord wants to do with that. 
All I can say is that the opposite is true. If they are not with them in that covenant relationship, they are not sanctified. And he says they are unclean. Nothing unclean can enter the presence of the Lord. Okay. Every single person conceived on this planet is unclean from the moment they are conceived. That's what the Bible teaches. All I can say is what the Bible teaches. I'm not going to say that God saves these people if he pulls strings. That is not my job. My job is to teach what this book says. And I'm not here to second guess what the, it's it. All I can say is that he gave us this for a reason. He gave us this particular verse for a reason. And everybody thinks it's speaking about marriage and it's not. It's speaking about children within the covenant marriage. Okay. Now, I don't know this, but I'm pretty certain that what that means is if the believer, the unbeliever leaves and the children stay with the believer, they're still sanctified as holy because it is the family relationship which is being dealt with. But if those children go with the unbeliever, they are no longer sanctified because he's not a believer and he is not has no communion with the Lord. And so they are now deemed as unclean. That's all that it says. I can't go beyond what it says. I can speculate all day long and we can do that after the camera's off, but I'm not gonna do that now because we're in a, in a teaching class. It is very hard doctrine. It upsets people when I say that. I don't care. You know what? If I didn't care about doctrine, I wouldn't say any during the Prophecy Update, and we'd have 50,000 viewers a week. But every time I open my mouth and say any doctrinal issue, people unsubscribe because they don't want to hear that. They just want to have their ears tickled. They want to hear goofy things about things that are going on in the world that are irrelevant to anything theological. Okay? Those Prophecy updates are done for one reason, and that is to bring people into a desire to want to know the Word of God, okay? But the Word of God offends, and when you get to something like this and it's evaluated, according to the context of the Bible, it offends, and people get angry, and they send you a dirty email, and you never hear from them again. It doesn't matter how much you've done for them. It doesn't matter. You could give them all of your life savings. You could lay on your back and say, okay, go ahead and walk all over me. And they'll appreciate it until you say one little thing that they don't like, and then they just send a nasty email and they never talk to you again. That's fine. I've grown used to that, but I'm not going to change the word of God because of somebody liking me or not liking me. Okay? <clears throat> 7.15. For though you might have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I have begotten you through the gospel. Jesus had said that the only reason for divorce is adultery. When saying this, he was speaking to the covenant people, Israel, and at a time which was under the law. Paul, now writing to the church for church age doctrine, has been careful to repeat Jesus' words and note that they are, in fact, his words. After citing that, he said in verse 12, but to the rest I, not the Lord, say. He then went on to say that a believer cannot leave a believing spouse, and he gave a very important reason for it. As I said, we could have gone into Genesis and spent another hour talking about that. Verse 15 is still a part of Paul's personal directions, and it may seem at first contrary to Jesus' words, but it is not. He's being carried by the Spirit, and his words have become a part of God's word. But begins this verse, and it is in contrast to the two previous verses. If the unbeliever departs, let him depart. This goes in either direction. When the unbeliever is a man or a woman, but he uses the masculine for both, as will be seen in a moment. Either way, if an unbeliever wants to be out of the marriage, then the believer may let them go. In fact, they probably don't have any other choice in the matter in most countries and cultures anyway. 
That's just the way it is. Christianity does not overrule government's decisions. Oh, he wants to leave. You got to let him leave, right? So they're probably going to go anyway. If they want to go and can go, then there's nothing which mandates that they must stay. Paul then explains this position by saying that a brother or a sister is not under bondage in such cases. We as believers have been brought out from the bondage of sin to a new master. To be in a different form of bondage wouldn't suit our new position and calling, and it could only be detrimental to our walk with the Lord. Therefore, to release the unbeliever is acceptable when they wish to go. And the reason is that God has called us to peace. Now, I will say the doctor asked a question a while ago, and I've been mulling it over, and this kind of gives an out in it. Okay, somebody is abusive, they're abusive to this person. And you say to them, well, you're not a believer, why don't you just go? And they go, then there's an out right there. If he says, I'm not leaving you and you're stuck with me, I have no other, I have nothing else to go with. All I can do is say that you can, you can say you're a non-believer, you have a right to go, why don't you just go, okay? Because nobody should be abused. I, I, but it breaks my heart when people email me and they're personally in that type of a situation and I say, listen, all I can tell is what the Bible says. I, I can't give you the, the answer that you want. I can only give you what this word says and that breaks my heart, but that's just the way it is. Somebody in here knows what I'm talking about because we've had kind of a similar situation, but not with abuse. All right. I think I read that. Yes, we are his and are to live under in peace under his authority. If our allegiances are skewed because of a marriage fraught with conflict and trial, then we are not living in the peace which he intends for us. And so in this verse, we have the only other reason which is biblically acceptable for dissolving a marriage. Understanding this, then, we need to think rationally and carefully about our marriage choices and do our utmost to adhere to the commands of the Bible. Life application. I had to give a different life application. I'm going to read this one. I'm going to give a second life application. First life application. Let us stand firm on the Bible, even though those issues which may be difficult or even displeasing. We have been called to obey the prescriptive statements made there, and it is unwise and inappropriate to pick and choose which ones we will adhere to. Life application two. If you want a model marriage to look after, look at Hedico Garrett, who has put up with Charlie Garrett all of these years. Life application number two. Because she she put up with, I'm telling you, if you guys only knew. Mom does. Mom does. Verse 716. I got to get to that page now because I had lost it earlier. Okay, 716. Oh, good. We'll do this and we'll be done because it'll end a paragraph. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? There it is right there. There is the perfect reason outside of the child reason. It's, it's a logical reason. How do you know that you won't save them? And he's not talking about them being the mode of salvation. He's talking about them being the way that they see Jesus and come to Christ. Verse 7, 16. In this verse, Paul certainly returns to the thoughts given in verses 12 and 13. Let me read them again, and then I'm going to skip right down to that. 12 and 13. But to the rest I, not the Lord, say, if any brother has a wife who does not believe and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce, divorce him. Down to verse 16. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? 
The reason for a believer not being allowed to depart from a non-believer has especially been given in verse 14 when considering the state of the children. Paul was very careful to note that children are considered holy because of the marriage bond which exists, even if one is an unbeliever. Although with the most important of reasons, Paul gives another reason for the believer to remain with the non-believer, and he does it in the form of two questions. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? It very well may be that the non-believing husband or wife may come to salvation through the marriage by observing the conduct and witness of the believer. Our happiness or unhappiness in a marriage is of far less value than the salvation of even one person that we may no longer be in love with. Our lives are called to be witnesses to Christ, even in a marriage which is unsatisfactory. That is the purpose and point is, you know, it's the same thing as saying, I, I forced myself to pray for my previous president. Why? Because his soul is just as valuable to God as anybody else's. Man, was that tough for me to do. And there were very few times that I did it. But there were times where I say, Lord, I just, I know I need to do this, right? Everybody is important to God. Everybody can be redeemed by God. All right. I understand some people will say they're too far gone and we don't know that. That's right. I, but I get really angry at people when they are really far gone. I, the Lord knows the things I think about them too. I get so angry at what the left is doing in this world today, but you know, they can, yeah, it's just evil. That's right. Evil is an infection. The verse also confirms that the sanctified status of the non-believer which Paul spoke of in verse 14 had nothing to do with salvation, but was rather directed solely to the setting apart of the children as holy. Also, Paul is not saying that the husband or wife could actually save the non-believer. Only Jesus can do this. He is implying that their, their actions would lead to Jesus saving them. This should be obvious, but it's still worth stating. Having noted this about the connection to verses 12 and 13, it is also likely that the thought of verse 15 is considered in this as well. But if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. Okay, taking that verse and tying it to verse 16, our verse which we're now looking at, Paul may be saying that allowing the non-believing spouse to depart is acceptable because there's no way that they could know the outcome of the marriage. If they refused to allow the non-believer to depart as they wished, because they were thinking they could save the non-believer, it could inevitably lead to strife, which is in opposition to the statement that God has called us to peace. So in all situations, the onus is on the believer. It's on the believer to one, never voluntarily depart from the marriage, two, to allow the non-believer to stay if they wish, and three, to allow the non-believer to go if they wish. The free will choice of the non-believer takes precedence, just as the free will choice of an individual to accept or reject Jesus as Savior takes precedence. Does everybody see the logic there? That unbeliever has the choice, and the, the non-believer has the choice in the marriage. They take precedence, not the believer. In salvation, guess what? Our choice takes precedence. God does not make us get saved. He offers us salvation. If you look at what Paul is saying there, it is as obvious as the nose on your face that what Calvinism teaches is incorrect. God does not force anybody to be saved. He offers 
everybody salvation through Jesus Christ if they hear the word. Hearing faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. That's why we tell people the word of God. We send out missionaries. This free will choice of the non-believer pictures the freedom God has given us in our marriage relationship to him and shows implicitly that the doctrine of being regenerated in order to believe is false. Free will is granted to humans concerning our relationship with Christ, and free will is granted to the non-believer to stay in the marriage or to depart from it. Life application. God, through his word, asks us to be willing to sacrifice our own happiness for the sake of our marriage. Our choices when self-centered will inevitably turn out bad. But when we are obedient to God's word, there is a chance, a chance, there is a chance that things will turn out for both our happiness and an increase in the kingdom through the conversion of others. Let us adhere to God's word, even if it is contrary to our happiness. Please, once again, go watch uh, Do You Love Me? It's just a short little uh, short little song, and it'll tell you how I think about marriage. I, we got three more minutes, so I'll say this is that I listen, you know, I don't anymore because I've got my Bible and that's all I've listened to for months now, more than a half a year when I'm driving. But I used to listen to talk radio and Michael Medved said something one time. He's a Jew, but he said something very wise. He says that nowadays marriage is considered to be the pinnacle. We wait to get married and we build up our, our war room and we have all of the money and we have all the things. And then we decide to get married. You've got nowhere to go. And so marriages end in divorce very quickly. He said, the standard all the way through human history was that you started out at the beginning and you were poor. I said, when he to go and she's here tonight, so she'll verify what I said in a class a while ago. When we were married, we had nothing in that house. We had nothing. We got, I bought a space heater, one of those kerosene things that would kill you if you, you know, oh my gosh. We had one of those and we had a couple other things in the house that we bought with our paycheck. And after that, we had nothing in there. We had nothing in our home for years. I mean, for years, the kids grew up with nothing. There was no furniture or anything. I'm, I'm telling you, we decided we were going to save and work our marriage together. And, that we, and so what happens when you get married and you're young and you struggle, you bond. It doesn't even matter if you're in love. You've earned these things together. There is not one thing on this planet that is mine that she can't have. Nothing. Everything I have belongs to her. Everything. It's all in her name. She can access anything. If she wants to take all the money, <laughs> all $7, and leave today, she can do it. She is, she's not my wife that's over there. She's my wife that's right here. And that's what happens when you get married at a young age and you work together. But now we've got this wrong idea about marriage and we live our lives saying, I'm going to get ready and I'm going to, I'm going to cap my life with the marriage. And it, it always ends up bad. Always. Look at Hollywood. How many times did they get married and divorced in a single year? I mean, it's just unbelievable because they have capped instead of worked things out together from the beginning. It doesn't work that way. Very insightful of Michael Medved. Heavenly Father, help us to stay firm on your word. Help us to trust your word and to rely wholly and solely on it. Help us to put our faith and trust in you and to not ever compromise the word of scripture that you have given us. Help us to be firm on it but at the same time, help us to be gracious when people violate it, because we all do. Every one of us violates your word, and so we can't be finger pointy about it, but we must maintain our proper doctrine in the process.
help us to have that balance and to understand the nuances of living a life which is holy to you, which is honoring of you, and which brings you the maximum glory, despite our happiness or unhappiness. Help us to live that way. And we pray this, that you will be glorified in our lives and in our marriages and in the children that we have. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>